I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Are you looking for a new fast-paced nail-biting thriller to fill that Dexter and Hannibal-shaped hole in your life? Kevin, are you? It's a hole in my heart. Then check out Hangman, a new novel by Jack Heath. Hangman introduces a darkly mesmerizing FBI consultant whose skill at finding criminals comes at a price. Every time he saves a life, he takes one. Hangman is available on Audible and everywhere books are sold. Visit bookclubbish.com to learn more about Hangman by Jack Heath and start reading today. Rebecca, where do you think I got this bag of 20 kind snacks? From Kind? Yes, it's the new (laughs) snack pack from Kind. You can enjoy 50% off and free shipping with your first snack pack when you subscribe to it through Snack Club, Kind's monthly snack subscription. Go to kindsnacks.com slash crime for more details. That's kindsnacks.com slash crime to learn more and subscribe to the snack pack. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about true crime, pop culture, journalism. And this week, we'll talk about the Netflix documentary Flinttown, an intimate look at the Flint, Michigan Police Department through the eyes of patrolmen, their families and community members in one of America's most crime ridden and troubled cities. We'll also check in with the latest episode of In the Dark and Lara's Head, which popped off her body last week, might actually explode in midair this week. <laughs> so joining me to do all of that and a whole lot more is my true crime co-author, real-life husband, and my favorite partner in crime, besides George Clooney, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. I'm just feeling like I should feel lucky to make it through In the Dark alive. You should. Hey, just, you know, <laughs> not, spontaneously Not everyone's combust. that lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Also with us is journalist, true crime author, licensed private investigator, former defense investigator, and certified cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. I've got my toes in the water, ass in the sand, not a worry in the world, a cold seltzer in my hand tonight. Uh, where are you, Laura Bricker? <laughs> Margaritaville? I, no, I, I went to the Zach Brown concert last weekend at Fenway. Oh. Um, so I, was I have just, no yeah. idea who Zach Brown. I, know, I always see that name, and I'm like, I don't know who that is. You have is. no idea where Fenway is. <laughs> I know where Fenway is, but I always yeah. see the Zach. So I'm like, by the way, thank you for including like 75 percent of America on our show tonight with that cultural reference, yeah. Laura. <laughs> but just well, know yeah. that I didn't get it, and I'm 100 percent sure Toby didn't get it. No, Toby Did definitely not. didn't get it. No, <laughs> can confirm. <laughs> and finally, the novelist behind the city trilogy and our favorite, most affectionate naysayer, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Roger that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do want to say a uh, big announcement. It is time. I don't know if we should put some music in here or not. I don't think so. Maybe like some Jimmy Buffett like music. Yeah. All right. It is the onset of summer, which means that we, the crime writers on team, are going on our annual bi-weekly schedule. Yay. So from now through the summer, just a few weeks, 
Everyone relax. We're going to be releasing podcasts bi-weekly. And as a reminder, if you've been through this process with us before, it's because we have complicated travel and vacation and schedules and also are exhausted and uh, could use a tiny bit of a respite. We've break. been weekly for how many straight weeks? Since I mean, Christmas. Four, yes. Do we take a Christmas? Yes, guys. Those guys that reply all, they make like two podcasts a month. I know. <laughs> Our audience is great, but we should say don't. Don't piss and moan. And please, Thank please, you. please stay subscribed. Don't stay give subscri- up on us. Yes. Just because we're going bi-weekly. And, and tell your friends it's a great time to catch up on past episodes they perhaps haven't heard about, right? Haven't listened to Wormwood yet? <laughs> no, you don't want to watch that shit. It's terrible. Um, so uh, another thing, just quick plug. Uh, Kevin and I, obviously, we have a show, a spinoff show on Stitcher Premium. For Stitcher Premium subscribers, you can go to stitcherpremium.com slash crime if crime. you want to subscribe. We dropped an episode of Married with Podcast this week, which is our exclusive Stitcher Premium show, in which we talk about our sex life. So if you're interested oh in hearing my. about that, um, <laughs> I really recommend it. It's $5 to hear about our sex life, I people. I really <laughs> recommend it. <laughs> it's solid. It's a solid episode. Yeah, it is. And uh, Toby, you I You know just... what I mean, Toby, right? It's solid. <laughs> it's not that solid. I'm trying not to think about it too hard. <laughs> That's not too hard. It's a very small part of the conversation. Oh, whoa, hey. It's, it's like when your parents have sex. I don't know if I'm going to be able to recover from this. Yeah, we don't actually get that explicit. We yeah. just answered a listener question, <laughs> and it, it kind of went there a little bit in a weird way, but it was also just a very good It was episode. a direct question, yeah, so yeah. anyhow. So, um, Toby- Reveal no more. I just, I just want to throw something out there, because as you can imagine, uh, and as I predicted last week, I got a bunch of hate mail this week about my reaction uh, to Candace in the last three episodes of The Staircase Mm -hmm. and her courtroom rant. And everybody is like, I used to love you, Rebecca, until you did that thing. Toby, um, I just want to let you know, like, you win. You win this with our audience. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Every once in a while. Yeah. So congratulations on that win. You are a better person who cares more about people. And your prize for winning, you get to yes. go to dinner with Candace. That is awesome. <laughs> Bring some earplugs, Toby. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Me, her, and Nancy Grace. Exactly, all together. <laughs> all right, Kevin, can you please read this for me? True, True crime, crime update! So this is going to be real quick. On Thursday of this week, the Supreme Court of the United States of America is deciding whether or not to take up Brandon Dassey's cert petition, whether or not to grant it. The night before, uh, there is a special episode of Undisclosed dropping tomorrow, uh, which is an interview between Rabia and Brandon Dassey's attorneys. Ah. So, Kevin, what do you think about SCOTUS? SCOTUS. Uh, Whether they're going to grant this or not. First of all, I think SCOTUS is a great... Acronym? Acronym, yes. It's the greatest acronym yeah. in America. As opposed to SCROTUS. Yeah. I, I, well, I think it's great. I mean, I, I really hope that they go for this. I think that the the high court needs to look at this. I think that it was the, the lower decisions are made in error, and I just don't feel like that guy did it. Who, Brandon Dassey? Brandon Dassey. I, I think we know he didn't do it. I mean, Laura, is there any like lack of clarity in this group about Brandon Dassey's culpability in the Teresa Hallbeck murder? No, I think even Toby agrees with us on this one. No, it, it, I just feel so bad for Brandon Dassey. And I'm so glad that people have gotten involved with trying to advocate for him in his case. Because, I, I mean, the, I can't even talk about or think about it. I've had to block it from my memory, that horrible interview when he wanted to go back to class afterwards. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just the poor kid. It just is really heartbreaking. And uh, I'm crossing my fingers for him. What do you think, Toby? 
He's definitely innocent and got taken advantage of by all kinds of adults in the justice system. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I will say Robbie's conversation with his defense team is really interesting. And I, I would plug it. I, I would I can stand behind uh, it's interesting content, and the lawyers are really good at sort of talking about the larger issues at play in, in his case. Uh, so, Kevin, can you please read this for me? True, True Crime, Crime Podcast, Podcast Update! So our friend, legal theory Colin Miller, tweeted something today, and I asked him to tweet more detail so that you could basically repeat the information on our podcast, Kevin. This is how lazy I've become. So do you want to just go ahead and read this series of tweets right now, and we can attribute the information. I'll do this. Okay. Steve Klepper at MD Appeal. Okay. In State versus Syed, Court of Appeals has docketed the state's reply in support of its petition for certiorari. Presumably combined with answer to cross-petition docket should soon reflect if the petition is being circulated at... Uh, he ran out of character. That was this morning. Yes. Colin Miller says we should have a status update soon. So Colin says, at Evidence Prof, the appeal filing in Anand's case will either, one, go to the Court of Appeals judges today so that they can decide on July 26 whether to hear the state's appeal, or two, go to the judges on July uh, 26 so they can decide in August whether to hear the state's it's appeal. It's a timeline issue, and how did it resolve? Read this tweet from Colin right here. Uh, the appeal filing of the Anand case <laughs> was distributed to the Court of Appeal judges today at 10 a.m. This is on uh, Tuesday. The vote on whether to grant cert, allow the state to appeal, should happen by July 26th, with reporting on that vote coming soon thereafter. So bottom line, uh, by July 26th, we'll know whether or not that court will take up this case. Right. Uh, if they don't and don't grant cert, then it's uh, automatic. The lower court uh, ruling stand. The conviction is vacated, and it's time to schedule a new trial for non Syed. Or come up with a plea deal. Or, yeah, or come up with a plea or deal or something charges. else. Something. Depending it, on who wins the yeah, election. There, there can be no further appeals. Right. So that's it. That is our uh, Twitter plagiarized, repeating legal series tweets, true crime podcast update. Nice job, Kevin. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even sh- print this out myself. We should explain you were very busy today and oh, didn't have yeah. any time to, to prepare. The yeah. time to prepare you normally would take... You didn't have that. I was just saying, this is my fourth podcast in 24 hours I've done. I know. I know. I'm a podcasting machine, people. But you've done your listening homework, right? I did. Good. My watching homework. Because it's time for this part of the show. The Brichter Scale. Laura, how do you feel about the thunderclap sound effect that I've added to the, the Brichter Scale? Do you like it? I do. And I feel like I need like an outfit now to kind of go along with all this, mm. like a wrestling kind of outfit or kick-ass kind of outfit so i'm gonna get working on that next week a mask (laughs) we need like our listeners to start like like like, doing like graphics or costumes or memes about the brichter scale oh yes i have been getting a lot of tweets from people it's it's like i've started a movement with rage walking Mm. i mean forget prancer size i'm getting tweets from people all over the place who are out doing their own rage walking now Hmm. um it's a movement. <laughs> I did have an interesting experience today because, you know, typically I walk a lot too. And typically my in the dark listening experience happens like in the morning when I'm alone, yep. walking in the woods with the dogs or whatever. And I, I couldn't do that today. So I was just at work listening like with, a, with my headphones, like while doing other tasks, like going to the copy machine, editing stories, 
very different experience. The rage, yeah. the rage potential was not as high when you're just mm-hmm. doing like rote work tasks. Mm-hmm. So basically, I just had to go, uh, you know, into a closet and scream for two minutes after I finished listening. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I didn't do that. But it, it definitely that walk while you're listening is very, it's very good. It's like the driving and listening thing. You can have road rage when you're absolutely. Is that what happens to you? Yeah, all the time. All right. Well, on this week's installment of the outstanding. Let's just agree. Outstanding podcast in the dark season two. Madeline's team takes a closer look at the DA's investigator, John Johnson, a black man who stared at white women, a black man who wouldn't make eye contact with a white man, a black man who was sweaty, who'd maybe lost his last job because he was on drugs or in a gang. And he was so careless that he damaged someone else's property when he dropped those batteries a sweaty, disrespectful black man with a doesn't-matter attitude. And from there, according to the notes that the DA turned over to the defense, John Johnson focused in on Curtis Flowers. Using his own investigative notes, we learn, among other things, that more than a dozen witnesses who supposedly said Curtis Flowers wore feelless shoes like those detected at the crime scene say... They never said such a thing. And we also learned that a bunch of the other notes were basically just faked and used as evidence at trial. So there's a lot there. But I want to start with something that one of our listeners tweeted tonight and just kind of kick off the discussion with this, because I think this is what a lot of people are talking about. So one of our listeners, Abby Crowley, tweeted, in the dark is better than cereal. There, I said it. And then Danny Reichert tweeted, Maybe, but there'd be no in the dark without a serial to show how the form can work. And then Crime Writers On tweeted because I was accidentally tweeting as the show account instead of my own account. Hard disagree. The form is different. It's the genre, true crime, that broke through with serial. And this kind of led me to think about how this team might have approached the Adnan Syed Heyman Lee case differently than the serial Uh team. So, Toby, what do you think? I mean, I don't want you to weigh in necessarily on whether or not In the Dark is is better than Syria. I think that they're different. But do you think that one could have existed without the other? Like, where do you draw the lines there? The question of, like, how would how would uh, the In the Dark team have handled the Adnan case, I think would have been to sort of more aggressively report it. Like, I don't – like, Serial itself – I, I kind of feel it was more sort of telling a story mm-hmm. than presenting reporting. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was reporting that was involved, obviously, but it was in it was in the purpose of like spinning a yarn, basically. You know, telling it, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, there's a narrative. Whereas I think in the dark is more about it, it's it's pretty much pure reporting. It's, it's we're going to try and get to the bottom of a story and reveal the truth as best as we can, which they're doing in, you know, a number of different ways this season as to whether it's better. I I think in some ways it is in that I feel like it is exposing more Mm -hmm. um, stuff about sort of the American condition, but there's something about about serial that was, that was like kind of charming or whatever that I think still sort of stands 
apart from everything else. It's a little bit of comparing Fuji apples with Macintosh apples or something. Like they're similar, but they're not the same. I think the style differences are that in Serial, we all agree that the story was Sarah's story, that it was really about her journey and not so much about it being a non-story. And in this case, in, in, in The Dark Season 2, I mean, I think we have to agree, this isn't Madeline's story. This right. isn't about her. Right. Th- though she tells us, oh, we found this and we did this. It's still about the case and, com- you know, uh, sort of uh, joined at the umbilical cord here, uh, Curtis Flowers and Doug Evans. Mm-hmm. So it's it's their story. So I think Toby's right. Syria was more of a... Um, you know, a story that yeah. was told. And uh, this is more like journalism. As but a piece both of journalism, you're going to like give one an award and not the other? Which one would you pick right now? Uh, well, I guess for journalism, you have to go with in the dark. Yeah. What about you, Laura? What do you think? Where do you draw the lines? Yeah. Well, I think I, I mentioned this last week that I think in the dark for me has surpassed serial because of just the level of reporting that has gone into this is just so far above anything else that we've heard in terms of the data reporting, the investigative reporting, the like, you know, shoe leather reporting, all of this combined. And also, uh, you know, Serial was about storytelling, but I think Madeline and her team are also very good storytellers in the way that they structure the episodes with these, they, they are very strategic about how they place certain bits of information throughout the episode so that when you get to that last 10 to 15 minutes, you lose your shit because it's all been set up so perfectly so that by that point when the big reveal and the momentum you know, sort of gains with the story and with what's being reported that week, it all comes together perfectly. So on the other hand, you know, yes, we wouldn't be here without Serial. Serial really, you know, launched this whole new format of audio storytelling that we're now seeing that has, you know, obviously kept us in business now for what are we like almost four years now? Right, I mean, right. but you know, I just in the dark is just so, so well done. Right. I mean, I think the thing that Serial did that we all agree on, I talked about this a little bit today on a podcast I was a guest on. It took true crime and true crime storytelling out from the fringes and put it in front of the mainstream so that people who are like, quote, public radio listeners and people who are, you know, not the kind of people who previous to Serial would have been invested in these kind of stories became invested and it opened up the opportunities. And I think that In the Dark Season 1 parallels Serial a little more. I remember there being a little bit more drama in In the Dark Season 1, a little bit more like twisty, turny kind of stuff. This is straighter. But Can you imagine how that would have been if they hadn't had a suspect come forward a would week have been before? Very, I'm, I'm actually, yeah. I actually am curious about that. I actually yeah. would have loved to have heard what it would have been. Because I, I do think this just this team is just bringing, it's a very well-built team. Mm-hmm. And it's bringing a lot of rigor to uh, the process. And they're doing, one of the things that Serial did so well is they showed us how they did what they did. And it was very transparent. Like, we're driving here now. We're writing this down. Which at the time was groundbreaking and now it's become like a trope like mm-hmm. a joke like uh one of the things that i i was listening to another podcast this week that someone recommended i check out for this show i'm not going to name it because we might end up talking about it but one of my most hated <laughs> podcast tropes now is i was curious about why this happened so i decided to make a phone call like <laughs> now it's a joke right yeah, yeah. Because in any other kind of storytelling now, it's like, don't tell us you're curious. Don't tell us why you made a phone. Just make the phone call. Like mm-hmm. we can, But Serial did that with the whole, because it was new. It was like the, here's why we did this thing that we did. 
And it kind of set up this whole thing. So I agree it's important. I don't think In the Dark maybe would exist without it because maybe like American public media wouldn't invest in this kind of project had it not been for the success of Serial. But it's very different. And I think I would lean toward giving the Pulitzer if they were competing head to head to In the Dark for sure. So this week's episode was structured in a series of acts. Once again, we kind of got like the the piecemeal episode where we're brought, brought through a series of chapters. And initially we hear about uh, Curtis Flowers' employment at Tardy Furniture and why it was he was identified as a suspect. Then we hear about Doug Evans' investigative techniques of sending a dude out to try to get secret recordings of Curtis and then lying about it, uh, including that whole section there with the shoe people. And then finally, we hear um, Madeline Barron's attempts to actually try to talk to Investigator Johnson and instead having to listen to him sing a terrifyingly relevant karaoke song. <laughs> it wasn't karaoke, it was a band. So, Laura Bricker, I really want to get to sort boys. of the meaty thing and start there with you. Um, you were an investigator for a living. So I think you're yes. probably more of an expert on this than anybody who could be guesting on any podcast talking about this topic. <laughs> we're talking okay. about an investi- investigator for the, the prosecutor, correct? And yes. we're talking about notes that he took that were then later used to make arguments in a trial and brought forward as evidence of sorts in a trial, correct? Yes. What do you think of an investigator perhaps just faking those notes after talking to people and or writing things in them that didn't necessarily happen to bolster a case that he was trying to make that wasn't a case to begin with? Thoughts, Laura Bricker? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, this is just, I mean, honestly, like nothing surprises me anymore in this case, but this is just freaking ridiculous. Like, I mean, I, I reviewed a lot of discovery in cases, and and that was how Madeline got this information, because these notes were turned over to the defense attorney as part of the discovery in the case. Like, first of all, it sounds like they weren't even typed up written reports. It was like scribbled things on pieces of paper with like these strange little notes with like something circled, like Curtis Flowers circled or dropped the batteries circled. And I'm like, first of all, how the hell are you even supposed to decipher what this means? But I mean, it was just I just felt like. The fact that the prosecutor, which I mean, obviously shouldn't surprise me either, didn't demand a higher standard of work from his investigator just shows how just absolutely, you know, skewed and just out of touch with the the justice system these people were. I mean, I can't even imagine a case where we live in New Hampshire, a murder case where you, you get scribbled handwritten notes instead of typed reports that are incomplete with incorrect false information and everybody's just cool with it yeah okay uh it just it made me wild it really it did so toby let's talk about how the episode is set up you know i wanted to start with laura because i felt like you know the investigative notes thing Ugh, it's like it killed me but before that there were some really really painful stuff about curtis's two and a half days or whatever it was working at Tardy Furniture and how it was that he became a suspect and sort of the echoes of the Emmett Till story we hear there that, you know, there's rumors that he'd been on drugs in a gang. doesn't seem to be true. And that Curtis made the two women at Tardy Furniture, quote, uncomfortable for some reason that seemingly no one can name. And then, you know, the guy, Frank, who goes to talk to him because he's going to set him straight is upset because Curtis won't make eye contact with him after ostensibly being a guy who makes white people uncomfortable by staring at them. 
What did you think of this section of, of the podcast and, and the reason that Curtis Flowers ended up in the frame, Toby? Yeah, you know, it, it's a little hard to tell what to make of it in that he kind of just comes off as being a little goofy. I, I thought in that she's because I think the way that the, uh, one of the women describes it is like, it's like when you t- say something to somebody and they just look at you and they're kind of smiling a little bit for a second before they do anything. And then when this guy comes and calls him on it, like he doesn't want to meet his eyes. And I don't know if that was just kind of the way he dealt with angry white men or whether he didn't like being chewed out or, or whatever. Uh, but then, you know, everything else about him also see, you know, where he drops the batteries and he's just like, you know, and, and was his uncle or somebody just said, yeah, he just like he smiled. Like if you do something stupid like that, you kind of smile and try not to make a big deal about it. So nobody will notice and he just doesn't show up for three days, right? Yeah. Um, you add it all up, and it sounds like a guy who just wasn't taking his job very seriously, and it's kind of maybe a goofball a little bit. But you know, if if that's if that's the indication of like a, a potential murderer, yeah, it's like you know, it's like every <laughs> you know how how many men between the ages of like. 18 and 25 are going to kind of act like that. Right. You know, it's, it's, it just seemed totally normal in that the only way you would find it like at all sinister is if you're looking back on it with the idea that he was the killer right. and be like, Oh, well, like, you know, that was an indication, but it wasn't, it just seemed like totally normal. And they painted a picture of, as Madeline says, a sweaty, disrespectful black man with an attitude. I mean, those are what the pieces all said, yeah. right? The and whole that sweaty thing was ridiculous. Yes, was yeah. he sweaty? Did he sweat? Did he sweaty? And as Madeline is interviewing big, big the guy, sweaty asking thighs. them, wasn't that part of it? Yes, big and sweaty I, thighs. I loved as Madeline was interviewing the guy, asking if Curtis Flowers was sweaty. The guy she was interviewing was sweating profusely. Yeah. She was like, "We're in Mississippi. Like literally, everybody sweats profusely all the time." Kevin, um, what do you think about uh, Doug Evans lying in court about sending people out? to drive around with tape recorders to try to get a confession out of Curtis Flowers, denying that law enforcement had done that when, in I, fact, law enforcement did ask people to drive around with Curtis Flowers and try to get a taped confession out of him. I, I, I don't know what to make of Doug Evans. I mean, uh, in the end, though, I mean, did anybody come back with any incriminating recording? No. Okay. You know why? Because there's nothing there wasn't incriminating. One. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm saying I, I don't know how he would have spun that in court if he tried to submit that as actual evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't know. I just I just see a pattern of a department that uh, believes very hard that their suspect is the guy they're looking for and will go to any reckless length to make it happen. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I see. And then we hear uh, Madeline make a journey to Johnson's house. She decides to go there. John Johnson's property is secluded. You can't see his house from the road. We drove onto his gravel driveway. The driveway slopes up at first, so you can't see anything until you get over the hill. And once we did, we saw that John Johnson's house was at the very bottom of a long hill at the end of the driveway. We drove toward it. Long driveway. We are going down this driveway. And as we did, dogs started barking. They were in a kennel, about 10 feet high and 15 feet long. The dogs were leaping onto the sides, basically throwing themselves seven or eight feet in the air and striking their bodies on the metal fence. 
one, two, three dogs in cages. We kept driving. We passed large mounds of what appeared to be cardboard boxes, lying in a heap on the other side of the road. The driveway curved through the trees. I noticed a lawn sign on Johnson's property for a state representative named Carl Oliver. Carl Oliver had been in the news the year before because he'd written on Facebook that people who took down Confederate monuments should be, quote, lynched. This so reminded me of some of my work at the public defender's really? office. <laughs> How scared were you for her when you worried that he might be home? Because I was pretty scared for her. I was scared. And I, as she was setting it up, I was like, I have been to places like that. I used to cover this sort of rural area. And I would show up at these like places out in the woods. And some of them would have like a plywood sign at the bottom that was spray painted with some sort of message. And you'd be like, should I go down there? I don't know, but it's my job, but I'm going to get killed. I, and I was like, oh, my God. And then when she had the, you know, the detail about the dog leashes, they sounded so like something about those dog leashes. I was like, oh, my God. Like, what's going to happen to her down there? Yeah. You know? Well, he wasn't home. So luckily yeah. nothing happened. But she didn't get the great tape of the dogs throwing themselves at the fence as they tried oh. to murder her <laughs> or whatever they were doing, just trying yeah. to get out of the fence. Yeah. And then we get the karaoke scene. She uh, tracks him down at a pizza and beer joint. We get to hear him sing a karaoke it's song. It's not about karaoke. It. It's a live band. It's like he's singing in a, with a band. Yeah, it was like me. open mic night or something. Yeah. Okay, so open mic. Sorry. It sounded like bad karaoke to me. <laughs> yeah. No, it was <laughs> a band. It was like so, somebody they interviewed invited the producer to go and see his band play at this place. Yeah, they were the good old boys. As, and they, they call, yeah, then they, yeah, they have a name and they called up like featured guests including him and the featured guest johnson sang a song yeah. about a guy on death row yeah that's charming that's charming it's a little too on point yeah so at the end of the episode we hear the preview for on the final mm. two episodes of season two of in the dark so we know there are going to be two more episodes and the preview includes the sound of madeline and maybe parker i'm not sure walking with somebody who sounds like a man through what sounds like a cave should we go through? Sure. Raw sewage or who knows? <laughs> the Goonies? We have to go through this? <laughs> does, does anybody have any idea what that Goonies scene that we heard the preview of in the last episode of The Dark is going to be about? Looking for One-Eye Willie? <laughs> Doug Evans is hiding out. He's, he's gone underground. So let's do what we forgot to do last week. Laura Bricker, right now, where are you on the Brichter scale? Um, well, I have to say, I, I, the highest that I have been was the, the week that we had the juror episode where we had the poor old teacher guy juror who was like blasted by the judge. And then I also, you know, when, when they did the data episode. So let's see, I'd say I'm still at about a 15 um, on a scale of one to 10. <laughs> oh, man. But I've, I've stayed steady at 15. Um, it's now I'm just like, every week I'm like, oh. <laughs> I love how she's the highest I've ever been. I think that like, she was like, I'm like, it was like a 12. That was the highest and yeah. now it's 15 and that's not as high. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the Brichter scale is fluid. It's got fluidity it to it. It so. is, yeah. Which I like, which I like. Buried that needle. Toby, where are you in the Brichter scale right now when it comes to In the Dark? Um, Out of 10? Yeah. Out of 10 Brichters? Yes. Uh, I think I'm at like an 8.5. Right. I think I'm sort of like down to the simmer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in like a solid 8.9 to 9.1 on the Brichter scale. What about you, Kevin? I think I'm a, a seven and a half Brickers. I think that that's... Uh... <laughs> 
That's up there. I mean, I haven't gone on a rage walk, but if I did, I would be wearing my Beta brand dress yoga pants. Ooh, nice. I wore mine today, so that would make oh. sense for you. Yeah, Rebecca, you love these from Beta brand. Uh, it's the dress pant yoga pants. So yep. the yoga pants, but they look... And oh. pass for like dress no, pants. No, they are oh, dress I've pants. They are dress pants. I've seen these that are Ooh. made of yoga pants stuff. And literally, you are wearing yoga pants, but everyone else thinks you're wearing dress pants. I remember telling you that this advertiser was coming on the show. Yes, and you like lost your mind because I you love, love Beta this. Brand. Yeah. I also just love Beta Brand, but this product from them. I hear Laura typing right now in the background. I am the yoga I've been pant dress these. pant yeah. is exceptional. It's an exceptional pant. Yeah, it comes with um, you know faux zipper and pockets, front button, belt loops. So you look sharp. Everything pants should have. Everything pants should have <laughs> a waistband. Except you can literally pull them on and then whip them off, and also just like walk around, like you go for a walk at lunch, and legit just be wearing yoga pants, but nobody knows. Yeah, they're available in boot cut. Straight leg crop leggings, as well as a variety of colors, including black, navy, gray, khaki, and seasonal, and limited edition colors that are released monthly. They have like pinstripe ones. They're amazing. Yeah. So basically, you're dressed for work, but you feel like you're lounging on the couch. Yeah. It's a business to everyone else, party for you. Visit betabrand.com. Use our code CRIME to get 20% off of your pants. Millions of women agree including Rebecca. These are the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear to work. That's betabrand.com, B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D.com. Use our code CRIME and get 20% off your dress pant yoga pants. Yep. What else you got, Kevin? Well, when you're uh, walking around, working up a sweat, when you're rage walking, one of the things you can do to quench your thirst and soothe your body is have a little something from Daily Harvest. Mm, Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest is a subscription service that makes healthy eating easy with delicious plant-based foods that are ready to eat in as little as 30 seconds. So I know when we see Laura out there, she comes back inside, works off her Mississippi sweat, and, <laughs> and then has Otherwise herself- Otherwise known as sweat. So just sweat, right? And uh, has, has herself a perfectly portioned cup of frozen organic fruits and vegetables- all you have to do is like add milk or, or water or, uh, you know, Laura, everybody does their daily harvest differently. How do you prepare yours? What have you been drinking lately? Well, it kind of depends on, you know, some of them are a little bit lighter, which are nice in the summer. And you could even use like some coconut uh, water with that when you blended it up, like the blueberry and hemp smoothie. You could do the cacao and avocado where I would use like coconut milk or almond milk, Um or, you know, if I'm really angry after my rage walk, <laughs> I might throw in a little nip or two. I mean, <laughs> let's be honest. I don't think that's approved by the folks at Daily Harvest. I mean, you could have a chaser, I think. But you should yeah, probably okay. just, you know, <laughs> stick with some milk or something in there. Skim milk. Skim milk. <laughs> Coconut milk. Yak milk. All kinds of milk. <laughs> Rum milk. Rum <laughs> milk. <laughs> <laughs> Harvey's Bristol Cream. That's right. <laughs> Remember, the the views expressed on this podcast are solely Laura Brickers. Uh, go to daily-harvest.com and enter promo code CRIME and get three cups free in your first box. That's promo code CRIME for three free Daily Harvest cups at daily-harvest.com. Daily-harvest.com. Moving on. Netflix's new documentary series, Flinttown, is about a year inside the understaffed police force of one of the nation's most violent cities, Flint, Michigan. While showing a range of views from officers and residents, 
We primarily follow a patrolwoman who longs to be a detective, her embittered boyfriend who is also her sergeant, a rookie who is going to the academy with his mother, and the new chief under pressure to bring down crime in any way he can. Flint is an average by a long shot. It's hard to step out of your own skin and realize that this isn't what everyone else is dealing with. I mean, every system has a breaking point. And I don't know where ours is. Flint. It was a great place to grow up. The home of the middle class. And then things kind of changed. Then they changed quick. You're all right, okay? Flinttown touches on all the issues, including black and white relations, police militarization, violence against and committed by law enforcement, staffing issues, politics, and the water crisis. But it still tells a story without getting lost necessarily in those issues. You may not like everything you see, but perhaps you need to see it. We are going to be giving away spoilers about Flinttown. So if you'd like to jump ahead to our spoiler-free review, fast forward to the time code indicated in the show notes. So the one thing that we have to get right out of the way, the cinematography of the show, the way that it's put together. Kevin, thoughts? Fantastic. I mean, this is so, it's so beautiful to watch. The remote cameras, the way they use the drone footage, which can be really hackneyed, Hackney, yeah. but it, it's great. There's there's so much sense of environment uh, that some of the episodes take place with, you know, thick white snow everywhere and so the red and blue lights just create this surreal image it's stark it's thematic in that way there's the there's the one where they've got uh fourth of july fireworks going off at night Mm -hmm. around all the action i just think that all of the shots are in the field are just uh so well done it's not like watching an episode of cops it has a couple of those moments every episode where they're racing to something uh, but it's just it put together so much better than a lot of the stuff we've seen. I totally agree. I think the cinematography, I mean, it's 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 really, it's movie quality cinematography. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even the shots of cops in the cars, like typically the shot is like a dash cam, you know, but, the, but they shoot the cops when they're driving around from the outside of the car. So you see them through the windshield. Yeah. Like the way, from the hood back. Yeah, yeah, the way that you would, the civilians would see them if mm-hmm. they were to look into the car. You Everything is sort of seen from multiple perspectives there's a gorgeous shot of one of the uh, main characters in the story, Bridget, the cop that we see, the young woman who wants to be a detective, and she finds out that the structure of the police department is not going to allow her to move into that job. So she basically, you know, the episode ends with her disappointment. And I don't know if the shot they got is concurrent with when she found that out. I mean, I don't know. I mean, how the film was made. The episode ends with this gorgeous shot of her standing in the parking lot of the Flint police station holding a rifle. You know, in her uniform, full uniform in the snow. And it is, it was beautiful to look at. Laura, you thought so too, right? Oh, yeah. This entire, it was just, um, you know, overall, there was a lot of, for me, like just exasperation, depression, like for this, this city dealing with what they're dealing with. I was just amazed by the quality Um, and, you know, certain scenes. And this is just a small scene, but just they would, do close-ups at times where I, you know, I'm sure that the subjects didn't even realize they were doing close-ups. Like one that just stood out um, when when the police chief was getting his haircut, yeah. um, and they zoomed right in. And but it just was so it really helped bring the story to a whole different level. Having you know this level of cinematography that was just so far above what you would normally see, I think, on a documentary 
of this nature. I think so too. Toby, I thought it brought a lot of humanity to the story of all the characters, even the characters that I think ultimately turn out to be unlikable. Isn't there sort of a, a humanity that comes when you just show them that close up? I don't know. Toby, what do you think? Yeah, I guess I don't, I don't know if it was the visual so much in that you just saw people in such different um, circumstances so that you would see, like, especially some of the African-American cops who you would see in these, like, full-on, like, down-on-the-ground motherfucker, you know, all this stuff, like, really aggressive policing. And then you would have them, you know, driving their police car, just kind of talking about their sort of ideas or, or, or philosophy about policing and racial relations and things like that. And it's just a very, you see, you see the two sides of it, which is that when there's action, it's like all business. And when they have a chance to be more reflective, I, th- I thought all of the African-American cops that they spent any time talking to had some really interesting and sort of nuanced thoughts about what their role in the, in the, in the society was, which I think the white cops were almost entirely lacking in. Mm. Well, except for the one, my boyfriend and Laura's husband's boyfriend, from what I understand. Oh, yeah. The bald uh, the captain b- slash lieutenant. Captain. Ten. Ritter, uh, yeah, no, he's, yeah. That, he, was, he was good. And I actually, even he the... Was, um, good. He was the, amazing. <laughs> yeah. And very handsome. Yeah, no, he was, he was, he seemed I'm like, he was a, a little more... letter. <laughs> he was a little more reflective. Yeah. I guess I was talking, I, I guess I'm thinking more about, they have the one guy who they really focus Robert on. Robert Frost. The ironically Robert named Robert Frost. <laughs> right. He he doesn't seem very thoughtful about anything. And then Bridget, you know, she's ambitious and she's clearly smart. But again, she also like she comes across as being as being sort of an appealing character. But the more you kind of go along, the more you realize it's at least for me, it was sort of more the circumstance that she was in right. and what she was kind of dealing with. But that when you hear more about like what her kind of outlook on things is, it's like, Hey, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I think the reason that, that she is such a compelling character. I mean, a, first of all, she's out of place in this scene, right? This is a police department. We see mostly men. We have the other woman who's in the cat squad, but it is mostly men. And she is ambitious from a career perspective. Like she has goals, like she wants to work for the FBI. She has sort of a bigger vision for herself that is larger than the circumstances that surround her. And in a lot of ways, larger than Robert Frost, who, as it turns out, is also her live-in boyfriend. And I found myself throughout the documentary in like... Most of the episodes when I had their scenes together, just being like, Bridget, good on you that you're like being nice to this guy who loves you. But like you could, I think, be more than what yeah. this guy is like setting, especially when you you kind of get to know him better and you hear some of his views and you see how he reacts when they watch that Philando Castile video. And I don't know. I They got married last month, by the way. Oh, they did? Yeah. So I guess she's not going to dump him and move uh, on for a career in the FBI like I'd hoped? She's not going to become Clarice Starling? I guess not. Uh, how disappoint- Laura, you're, you're personally disappointed by that too, right? I am. <laughs> I, I just, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. He wasn't that bad, but you know. He was bad. Um, no, he was. I just felt like she was, I was watching this and I'm like, this is like 
what happens to, you know, look at different people that you know from like right after college and say they, they were ambitious and they got a job and they were smart and then they got a boyfriend and then the boyfriend didn't want to move. So they stayed where they were instead of actually, I mean, I hate to say this, but you know, I, I had friends like this, um, you know, what and their it names? was like, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, Laura Bricker. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, no, no. It's not me. Um, but but I just felt like you know when they went on that vacation, I realized how small his worldview really was. Right. I think that he said it was the first time he'd been on a plane. Right. So I was like, I don't think he's left. Like he's in this sort of bubble of like survival in Flint, Michigan, and she's had different outlook on things. But I think that I don't know how long that's going to last for her in terms of having that different outlook. So let's zoom out a little bit, because the the series is really about this very troubled city, troubled on many, many levels, Mm -hmm. and this very understaffed police department that is paying their cops, what, like $15 an hour or something we learn at some point in the show, Uh, which is Uh, Not a lot, yeah. Uh, And and there's a political shift. There's a new mayor elected who then fires the chief, who we've already met in the first couple episodes, and brings on a new chief who's kind of dare I say, a bit of a cowboy who has, you know, ambitious, aggressive ideas about how to police the city that sound a whole lot like exactly what we heard in the first couple of episodes doesn't work. Militarization, lack of community policing. One of the first things he does is set up this cat squad. Uh, It's a unit that patrols high crime areas using the tactics of basically going to where crimes have happened before and just being very aggressive in these militarized vehicles. Was this cat squad necessary? Uh, Toby, what do you think? It's it's a little bit hard to tell just because you're watching a documentary and God only knows what else happened. But it seems like, you know, a fair amount of the time, it's, you know, a lot of of sound and fury resulting in not that much. Mm-hmm. Um, like they, they get that one guy who they pull over who like drives into his own driveway and they're giving him the business like – you know, I'm going to take you downtown or whatever. And it's just the guy's like, what the fuck? I was just like driving to my driveway. It was right there. Well, I want to talk about that later. And then there's a whole thing with the, with the liquor store yep. that, yeah. that is like a lot of like intimidation and effort and stuff. And then the judge is like, what the fuck are you talking about? We're opening it back up again. Like you can't close down a private business, right? Right. Yeah. And then there's, you know, later they bring up the pro- the problem, which is, you know, at a time when at some nights, I mean, they, there are nights when there's like four police cars out for a city of 100,000 yeah. and then you've got eight, eight, you know, of your most experienced cops like driving around this Humvee, like looking for potential trouble and the whole idea of like stopping crime before it happens. It seems like one of those things that sounds good in principle if you want to be a hard ass, but then when it's actually like designating resources you know, how effective is it? And, you know, the documentary kind of makes the case that it's not that effective because even though like violent crime, it goes down, they're like, oh, it's down 40%. We hope it's 50%. And it's like, oh, well, then we had this week where six people were killed and now suddenly it's not like that anymore. So Laura, let's let's talk about that staffing because that is a huge theme Uh, in the documentary. And you, you are law enforcement adjacent. Your husband's a fire chief. And I am not law enforcement adjacent. Like my grandfather was a police officer but like even I know that watching these cops go out on dangerous calls alone in patrol cars is scary and even I know 
that when you see 40, 50 calls backed up on the lines and there's been a shooting and it takes two hours for cops to show up, like, what did you think of that? There's the resources that the city lacks. Yeah, we were. It was funny. Ken and I were actually watching the, some of these episodes together, and I, we were talking about it because I was like, "Like, how many officers do we have on duty?" And we figured out, like, based on like what we have in like our towns around us where we live in New Hampshire, in terms of the number of police that they have on duty during a shift, for, based on what your population is, um, like Flint was at like twenty five percent of staffing compared to like what we see where we live for like normal staffing. In Exeter, so they're New like Hampshire. at a quarter. Yeah, like at a quarter of what they should be at. It was funny. He came in, we were watching that Cat Squad one, and I was like, what do you make of this? And he's like, well, you know, you're going to take resources away there. You're going to see an effect over here. And and that's clearly what we saw. I mean, the fact that they had 40 calls backed up when they came on duty, there's no way that they're going to get to those calls on their shift if they have to get to emergencies that are happening. It's something that, you know, I, I've, I've had to, you know, pay attention to because I, I do hear these stories and I hear about budget cuts and I heard about, you know, a local town near us where, and this made me like crazy, you know, same thing, like, oh, no, we're, we're going to make budget cuts and they cut like active shooter training. And I'm like, you can't do that in this day and age, right. you know, like, what are you doing? Right. Um So I think it's just I felt a lot of sympathy for all of these officers because I felt like even the ones that had the bad attitudes, I mean, they were being set up to lose. Like, I mean, there was no good outcome for these officers. Just looking at the approach that the police chief was taking, it was almost like I felt like watching it like like he was in a war zone somewhere, not here. And it, and it wasn't like he was following what we would consider to be the normal um, boundaries in terms of how you would enforce things. It was like triaging everything. And, and that's not going to get you anywhere. It reminded me a lot of watching like The Wire and how they used to juke the stats. Like he's just coming up with a way to improve the numbers mm-hmm. and basically t- saying like, we're not going to invest in these things that are important. We're going to do this instead because it'll be like a short-term gain, short-term gain. And I felt like that to me. Kevin, what were you, what were you thinking? I was thinking, you know, one of the things that um, hit me was the complex, intertwined nature of race and uh, their job Mm -hmm. and how they do their job and how the community affects them and how it's viewed differently by white officers and by the black officers. Huge theme in the documentary. Yeah, and I really liked, I really enjoyed hearing from the black officers because they did talk about that complexity. I, I That's something I enjoy is anything. Let's, let's get down and dig in a little deeper on some stuff. And they were comfortable enough talking to the camera about that. And there was that one sergeant, and I think his name is pronounced Urquhart. Yes. I mean, he's, he's he, not the one who's also a minister on the side. No, that's another guy. That, that, there's a great character there. Fascinating. But he said, you, you know, he and, and all the black officers we, we, we heard were very proud of their profession, what they did. Uh, but he said, you know, I wear the uniform, but I also fit the description. Right. So he was self-aware about that. And I thought that, you know, I think we saw like the white officers handled themselves very well. Sometimes you're like, mm, I don't know if I would have yelled at that person. Well, it's also what we saw on camera. It's also what we saw on camera, right? right. I, I got to imagine. We also saw a what the white officer said when they weren't interacting with suspects. Right, and some exactly. Of it was ugly. Yes, 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 yes. But what I'm saying is that I thought that the black officers had better soft skills. Yeah. With. Yeah. The, community uh, with the community members yeah. of the dealing, even when they have to arrest them. And Toby talked about a really interesting exchange where they had where they tried to stop a guy for, you know, uh, in a traffic stop. He wouldn't stop. He pulled into his driveway. When the officers went up, he did something with his hands. And so the black officer, you know, yelled at him, started reading him the riot act. 
So he he gets the uh, the citizen. He puts him in the back. Uh, young black guy, and he's all and he walking around and telling you know because no, I'm he's going to pay dearly for that. I'm going to take his car. He sounds like this is going to be like really serious, and uh, he sits there and he's telling him, you know, you know what? Why didn't you stop? You know, explain. You, tell me that and what you did with your hands. He's not just chewing him out as an officer. He is subtly telling him, warning him, not in a I'm going to write you up way, is and is for your own safety. Yeah. He say he's basically pointing out these are the things as a that fellow community as a member. community member. Right. He doesn't explicitly say this, but another cop, perhaps a white cop, you do that and that and that and you die. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't say that. That's what but he that's means. The, yeah. But that's that's what he means. And yeah. you know, and he gives the sends the guy on his way after very, after what could have been very serious. There's another really, those guys, we see a lot of those things. There is another really powerful scene where the cop talks about the police as a brotherhood mm-hmm. and says like. My like fellow black men, like they're my brothers, and my fellow cops are my brothers, and I'm caught between this, these two brotherhoods. Like it is, and this happens. I mean, I think the most one of the most powerful scenes in the documentary is as a a, a training tool. And I have to say, like this could have been a very different kind of documentary. We don't know what was left in the cutting room floor. We do know the documentarian spent a year with these cops, and there's very few of these cops. So They like, shuffled the time. I know a little bit about that, yeah, too. Yeah, they did shuffle the yeah. time because we did see ranks change and stuff yes, back and forth. I thought, he's a captain, but he's a lieutenant. You mean the hot guy? Yeah, the hot guy, yes. <laughs> he's a captain, and all of a sudden he's a lieutenant. I don't want to like, get too happened? far into like yeah. the rabbit hole of the hot guy, yeah. but there was this well, one I wanted, guy. There was one scene yeah. that was amazing with how he dealt with that woman the that he guy? pulled over. Oh, I the one who lied to him? Yes. Yes. We should probably use his name, but can we just keep calling him the hot guy as a point of reference? I don't remember what his name was. The hot, bald captain guy. Anyway, so he pulled this woman over that was going the wrong way on a street, and he asked her for her ID, and she's like, I don't have ID. Then he asked her for her name, and she gave a name, and then she's like, that's not really my name. And it was like this whole just train wreck. And and this guy was great. This is a guy that uh, Fireman Ken loved as well, but he's like, I'd like that guy to work for me because he never me too. got faced by anything. He... <laughs> He never, I know, um, he just he just took everything in stride, but he was so decent with how he dealt with people. So, Devin you know, instead Burn-Ritter. of- I'm going to send him a fan letter. Burn Richard. I am, I am too, Rebecca. So, you know, I, that scene really stood out to me because it could have, it's a situation that we've seen. I mean, I've seen cases like this when I used to do defense investigations and, and it could have gone so wrong so quickly because, and, and this guy was just like, okay, get out of the car, have a seat. And he's like, let's talk about this. Like, what's going on here? And and she's just like, ah, oh, just freaked out, you know. But he just handled it in such, a, you know, just the way he handled it. I was so impressed because I feel like, you know, we see so much lately about cops doing things that are like suspect. And you're like, uh, and, and, and it starts to become a stereotype. And then, you know, you have to remind yourself. This isn't everybody that's in this field. And and there are good people like in all careers. And and this guy clearly, aside from the fact that he was hot, um, you know, he he really handled that situation just so well. And I think in the end he let her off with a warning. The guy I'd most likely have, want to have a beer with. But we also know that there were cameras present and a documentary crew present say, yeah. for all of Who this. Who knows how that would so have gone down? We don't down. know yeah. how any of the stuff would have gone down had the documentary crew not been present. But that being said, he took the moment to deconstruct it and said to that driver Tell me why you had this impulse to lie to me about your name. Mm. Your name came out clear. Your car came out clear. You don't have any outstanding warrants. Like, why was your first impulse to lie? And what we get as a viewer is maybe, let's just assume that he's being truthful for the cameras, maybe he actually really wants to know 
right? Like maybe he wants to learn something, which isn't the typical narrative. But he also we get. teaches us something. So let's let's just right. let's just talk about a typical narrative that we do get that we also see because I don't think the documentary shies away from like the actual systemic racism that exists within police departments. There's a training morning where the cops, this is right after the Philando Castile shooting, are asked to watch the video that we've talked about in the show before where Philando Castile's girlfriend shot the video right after her boyfriend was shot and basically we watch him die as these cops are still training their guns on him. So they make them watch the video at roll call and then they share their thoughts. And... Later, they talk in the episode about the police shooting in the police ambush in Dallas. And there are two distinct reactions to both of these incidents. Toby, what did you think of these scenes in the documentary where we, where we just see in the moment, in the roll call, the cops reacting to each of these and the white cops are all on one side, it seemingly, and the black cops are on the other. And the black cops don't really say anything. That's right. Not, yeah. not in the roll call. It's like the, the white cops all are kind of jumping to the the cops defense and the black cops are all kind of you know watching it except for the captain which i thought was interesting the one who brought it up he wanted to talk about it he was the only one toby who had the observation about how the patrolman was acting improperly and everybody else is talking about yeah right he's still yelling he's all amped up yeah. you know there, there's something more going on who knows how it was edited i'm sorry to jump in on you i was just excited about that no 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 i no 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 you're you're totally right um and there's an older african-american cop who says something about like that's why i always tell them to keep their hands where i can see them or something at that point was when i actually sent you guys uh an email about like what i wanted what sort of observations or whatever and this is before we even get to like the more sort of direct stuff at the end, but saying this is a police force that's got, it's got a race issue. Mm -hmm. You know, even if, even if the cops get along and stuff, their perception of the world is so different. Like if you do something wrong in Flint, especially if you're a young African-American man, like your experience is going to be quite different depending on which cop shows up to deal with you. Right. Um, But not just Flint. No, I think that, I think that's absolutely true. You know, in general, but as far as this documentary went, to me, I thought the 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 scene that had like the most impact to, for me about kind of what the themes of the the whole series was were uh, was right towards the end when the cop who's also the preacher is driving down this one street and he's like, you know, I could take all of these cars. You know, I could take every one of these cars. I've got a reason to take all these cars, but you know, what does that do to this neighborhood? How do? What does that do to Flint if I do that? You know, and, and he's got an interesting perspective because he's both a preacher and a cop. So I, I think he's seeing a lot of the troubles in the in the city from from two different perches. But that's really it, right? It's like the the big question is in this crazy, violent city where you have where you're way understaffed and there's no way you can really deal with everything. It's like, what, what are you trying to accomplish with what you've got? And I think that's the problem with Tim Johnson, the new chief, like what he wants to accomplish. I think you can only accomplish if you have a, if you have like a fully staffed police force. I mean, if you really want to send people in, in on force you need to have the the manpower to do it. And what he's doing is putting some people in the Humvee, showing up here, there, or some other place. And you see later, like some woman comes up, she's like, there's been all these troubles on my block. 
And he's like, what block is that? And she tells him, she's like, I, I heard there was this cat force that was supposed to be going around checking this stuff out. He's like, well, yeah, you're on our, you're on our list. We go by there every once in a while, but there's just no way they can, you know, you're, you're, you're using a sledgehammer on, I just ran, I just lost my analogy completely, <laughs> but you're basically using, you're, you're, you're using like a blunt instrument on something where you really need, you know, you're trying to chop down a tree with like, with a hammer. That was like so many analogies. <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying words and, and two of them will connect in the right way. Just like Chief Johnson. I think along those lines, one of the most powerful sort of sections of documentary was around the Trump election. And Trump actually came to Flint and gave a speech. And there's that scene where all the cops are actually on their way to a Bernie Sanders Hillary Clinton debate Mm -hmm. because there was a Hillary Clinton Bernie Sanders debate also in town and they're talking about the election in this giant van where they're all driving there to do the the job and you get this very clear-eyed perspective on why the white cops in the van are anti-Hillary mostly anti-Hillary not anti-Democrat but definitely anti-Hillary and then later as the Trump election comes around like uh, Robert Frost talks about like why he's voting for Trump and it's all about the law enforcement rhetoric like Trump is pro-cop Uh, Trump is pro-cop. Trump is pro-cop. And then one of the black police officers says to the camera, yeah, Trump is pro-cop, but don't we have to think about everybody else, not just the cop? Like, shouldn't we be thinking about everybody? And that was like such a moment to me of just like reflection and a broader view. And it wasn't like what was interesting about this documentary to me and the race stuff was they weren't, I think, showing. And and they did a lot of showing and not telling, which I loved. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like the white cops were on one side and the black cops were on the other. It was like the white cops were more tunnel vision and the black cops were more open. That's how it came across, at least in this small community of cops in this town. And it was really interesting. But I just want to touch on one more aspect of this before we wrap it up. Laura, uh, about two thirds of the way through the documentary, we start seeing that one of the new chief's tactics in order to staff the police department is to recruit a bunch of old, busted-ass volunteer cops to um, join the force in some way. and the reserves. Like, and one of the tests for these reserves is to stand approximately 11 inches from a target. 10 feet, 12 and feet. It did not look like 12 feet. It looked like it was about 11 inches away. And at least just try to hit in the general realm of the target. And we kind of get to know a couple of these volunteer cops a little bit. Um what do you think of this concept of just like bringing regular people in, a lot of retirees armed to help your cops patrol the streets? Yeah, I don't I, I, I we were Ken and I were watching this one together. and We're like, yeah, this may not be the best idea this guy's ever had. Um, I, I, I understand having the reserves and having like auxiliary police like I know places to do that. But I don't feel like the auxiliary reserve people are usually armed. And that's the part that really. Like we had the guy, the one guy that we followed, he was so happy. He was singing all the time and taking care of his wife and taking care of his parents. And, you know, he was, what is he, was he 65? I was like, oh my word. So, you know, I guess it's a bold way to get more, you know, warm bodies out there on the street. But like, honestly, like you had your, your guy there going through training, the regular recruit. Like how long did he have to go through training? And yeah. then he still had to ride with another weeks. officer for That's you know, right. but, uh, before he could go on his own. And then these guys are like, all right, we're hitting the street. Right. I was like, whoa. In terms of bridging the gap with the community, I think maybe that is the benefit you get there is that more people in the community are going to feel 
you know, maybe connected to the police. But then, but then they went on the call and they just stood around looking around them yeah. like cluelessly. Like, oh my God, that was hysterical. <laughs> what are we supposed oh, to do now that oh we're my, here? Oh my goodness. Oh, it's an abandoned car. <laughs> It was just was totally bizarre. Like, I cannot imagine something like that happening. I, I don't even know what to say about it. It was so bizarre. I don't know how common it is, but it's, it's that's certainly not only in Flint. There's a guy, I think in Oklahoma. Yes. Who- uh, Murdered somebody. Yeah, murdered somebody who was on their face cuffed, just just killed them. Went for the taser and got the, the handgun instead. But, I, you know, my thing is like, one of these guys is going to get killed. Right. They're going to go to a place- and, you know, these guys have got guns. So even if, you know, somebody was like, oh, I don't want to kill the 65-year-old guy, if he starts reaching for his holster, people, <laughs> you know, they're going to get killed. So I don't know. I To me, like the idea that there was nobody who was like, uh, Chief, why don't we rethink this? Right. You, don't, you don't have like, to take maybe, everybody, Chief. Right. But that, that wasn't the <laughs> right. only I mean, Maybe these guys can answer phones. Like you're, you're talking about how you've only got one guy answering phones. And yes. You've got like one of your best cops yeah. doing it. These guys can answer phones, you know, just do something like that. You know, for as much as I hate Robert Frost in this documentary, I do really kind of hate the guy. We do see him, A, working as a cop, also being a dispatcher, also training these volunteer cops. Like everyone is doing every job. It's crazy. So, Kevin, yeah. crazy thing number two, I'll come to you for this one. Yeah. Uh, the chief decides to raise money for the police department. He's going to sell <laughs> all the firearms that were yeah. taken in as evidence in other crimes. And they basically have like an eBay sale. And basically I'm sure it was an auction. Probably sell a lot. those yeah. guns back out in the streets again. Thoughts? It, it's done in many places. I think a lot of people watching the documentary may not know that. I was shocked. But- and as the TV reporter pointed out, I mean, there is, you know, it's touchy because... I love the TV yeah. reporter, by the way. Yeah, I, I loved her. <laughs> yeah, I do believe that the, uh, and this is just from the context, I think that the only people that could buy in the auction were licensed gun dealers. So individuals Who then will purchase- exploit loopholes to sell I, them to people who get back I, in the streets? I don't know. They didn't, they didn't spend that much time on it. That's but, true. But I mean, I think it just, you know, goes to the desperation they have for money. Right. Now, uh, Toby, third thing, uh, before we wrap up that I want to ask you about, you are a fiction writer. Would you even dare to write a character into something like this if it were fiction where a mother and son were both going to the police academy together. <laughs> yeah, that was quite something. It was interesting in that she's almost not even a character. Right. And it's basically like, don't you get worried, you know, if, you know, he's going to an active shooter thing and you hear it on the radio. And she's like, no, nah, not really. <laughs> um, Better him than me. He comes off as a, as I think a pretty appealing guy. And I think he gets into it for the right reasons. And then at the end, like you kind of feel like, you know, after spending this year, you know, with training and then riding along with, with different police and stuff, like he really comes away with it. Like at least what he talks about is kind of what I think we've identified as being the really positive aspects of some of the police, which is that, you know, it's a social worker aspect right, of things. Right. It's like, I'm in a, I'm in a ruined community taking sort of a broader view, which I think is, you know, and again, it's like a documentary. So who knows what the reality of some of this stuff is, but that certainly is what comes across as what Flint needs is not sort of this hard ass cowboy stuff, but people who are, you know, strong and not going to take bullshit. And like and, Lieutenant McDreamy. 
Oh, yeah, that but, guy. but 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 who are also understand like what the what the greater goal is, right. and it's not just like putting away as many people as possible. Right. They did show Lieutenant Matrimi's wife, by the way, and I would never want to mess with her. She seemed tough. So I'm just <laughs> I, saying. I like McDreamy's uh, going through the neighborhood, look, pointing out the graffiti. Yes. But fuck the police. Oh, and he was like, "It's just yeah, an act yeah. of love for the police." Act of love. Make love to your local law enforcement. <laughs> they want to make sweet yeah. love to yeah. us because they appreciate our work so much. <laughs> it was very good. All right. Well, let's do that thing that we do on the podcast right now. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out Netflix's docuseries Flinttown if they haven't already? Laura Bricker, thumbs up or thumbs down review? What do you think? I'm going to say thumbs up. Um, it definitely. It was it was extremely well done. I fluctuated between like depressed, helpless feeling for these poor police officers and then some optimism because I saw that there was still, you know, there's good people out there that were really sincerely there trying to make a difference. So, um, and it's just, it was it was well done. It's it's very enlightening. So thumbs up. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Flinttown? Uh, uh, thumbs up. I, I wish I saw the optimism that, that Laura did. I mean, it Agreed. seems like the optimism seems like in these little, little microcosms, but that the greater Flint story, I mean, they still don't have drinking water. Right. I mean, for God's sake, um, it's long, but I don't feel like there was any padding to it or anything that I would have necessarily cut out. So, so yeah, I mean, I, it's definitely bingeable. I agree. I loved this series. And Kevin, I'd like to apologize for, to you for avoiding watching it for so long. I thought it was <laughs> going to be way more depressing than it is. And it is depressing, but it's depressing in a good way, if that makes sense. Like, you need to see this stuff. And there are some disturbing scenes. You see some dead bodies in this, which we didn't talk about. And yeah. you really are confronted face on with race stuff that is painful, but it is done in a way that is designed to include the viewer in the conversation. I think some of the most effective and powerful moments in documentary, something we didn't talk about also, are the citizen interviews. The two ways right in front of the camera, you get the cops, you get their family members, but you also get just citizens talking about how they feel about the police. Those are used to great effect. I walked away from this understanding the city better. I walked away from this understanding the dynamics in the police force better. I really, really loved it. I love Flinttown. I think everyone should watch it. So I'm giving it a big thumbs up. Kevin, what about you? I'm also going to give it a thumbs up. I thought one of the most effective things is that the filmmakers seem to make everybody so comfortable that they were just very free with their thoughts because it is also it is a very thoughtful uh, docu-series and beautifully shot. And you won't always agree with everything you hear people say. But I think that on whole, it's balanced and covers a lot of different ground and is still able to tell you the story of what happened in this police force over a year. It's shot beautifully. I think it gives you something to think about. It's certainly a documentary to toast. Yeah. And if you want to toast it, maybe it's with a glass of wine from First Leaf. Oh, First Leaf. First Leaf is the only online wine club that uses your ratings to make personalized wine selections. It's algorithmic. It's algorithmic, yes. So you don't have to buy any more like boring wine, stuff that you're not going to like. Uh, First Leaf will send you some wines you taste, you rate, and that helps you better customize the boxes that you get. First Leaf will even create a limited time offer introductory three-pack of wine based on your flavor profile. And the best part is you get all three of these bottles for just $5 each. These are like $20 wines, and so you're getting each one for, for 5 bucks. With First Leaf, you never have to worry about spending money on a bad bottle of wine because they guarantee you'll love the wine you buy, or they will send you your money back. 
So, Rebecca, do you remember we did this profile, this yeah. flavor profile? Oh, yeah. We got some nice bottles of red. We got some red, some whites, rosés. Everything was great. I really, really love the Pinot Noir. Remember we opened that up? It uh, yes. Delicious. And then the best thing is actually, I think, getting your second box because they take everything you liked about the first and what, what kinds of different flavor profiles, and they find other wines that are just like that. Sign up with our link, and you will get an exclusive intro offer. It's three bottles of wine for just $15 plus free shipping. That's it all. If you try these three wines, you'll get an extra $10 off your next box. So go to tryfirstleaf.com slash crime. That's try, T-R-Y, tryfirstleaf.com slash crime. Crime. I forgot to say the first crime there. And now it's time for here part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the crime the of the week. You're not going to say that with me, Kevin? I did. I said it really fast. The crime of the week. A mom in Southern California wasn't buying it when a man on a bicycle approached her car, showed her a gun, and said he was an undercover cop, and started going through her purse. She, her husband, and four kids were parked next to a food truck when the imposter approached them. To distract the con man, the mom offered him a taco and offered to go back to the truck to get napkins. She asked the cooks and customers to call the cops. When the police arrived, the robber threw the handgun into the car and tried to get in, but they got him anyway. Police praised the mom for what they called her taco tactics. (laughs) So, panel, this criminal's love of Mexican food was greater than his skills of impersonation. What is another way this taco-loving crook could have been thwarted? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Uh, I mean, nothing goes with tacos better than margaritas. So, you know, <laughs> I think she could have gotten him a little frosty beverage as well. What do you think, Toby Ball? What is another yeah. way this taco loving crook could have been thwarted? I don't know. A salsa set up for the cops. <laughs> How about a little bit of like Cholula in the eye? That's like my big thing. Like, why be so like, I guess he had a gun. So you don't want to be like too aggressive. Yeah. But I'm thinking Cholula right in the eye. What do you think, Kevin? I think a slurpy brain freeze. Oh. Uh, I think that would immobilize him. Neutralize the threat. That's debilitating. (laughs) Yeah. All right, Laura Bricker, before we wrap up the show this week, do we have a cat of the week? So we have a cat. We have an in memoriam Watson pirate Jenny. Her cat, Watson, died very suddenly, and it was a ginger boy kitty, so I have to mention that. I thought we had a like no dead cats policy, Laura Bricker. It's depressing. We do. I know. But I felt I felt sad for Pirate Jenny. But I'm Jessica sorry, Palmer. Pirate Jenny. But I have to say we have an owl <gasps> of the week. Oh <laughs> Jessica Ooh, Palmer is well it's she has made an owl sculpture and she made it for the Minerva Owls of Bath Project, which is raising funds for local charities. So um, I think somebody out in Crime Writer on Listenerland might go um, bid on that for local charities and send it to Toby Ball for his birthday. Is there a link we could use to bid on that? Because I kind of want that owl. I'm not going to lie. Kevin's looking at me right now. I'm getting to the bottom of it. I will find <laughs> out where we can find this owl and how that we can like buy it. sounds like a hoot. All right. Oh, <laughs> Laura Bricker, if people want to send their cat slash dog slash sculpted owl slash lizard slash birds to you for pet of the week submissions, how can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, if listeners want to reach out to you and help you bone up on whatever the crime of the week is going to be next week, how can they find you online? Bone up? Um, (laughs) They can find me at Toby Ball NH, and they can also find me on uh, The Blotter Presents this week. I was on with Sarah Bunting, and we talked about two uh, shows about prohibition. 
Nice. Prohibition? You mean like the prohibition where we couldn't drink anything? Uh, well, you weren't supposed to, but people seem to yeah. do it anyway. <laughs> they found a way. like Just like life, it yes. finds a way. Finds a way. And Kevin Flynn, if you want to reach out to you online, perhaps tell you uh, how wonderful your wife is after they listen to our sex episode of Married with Podcast. Hey, you don't actually know how wonderful she is. That's right. It's true. And you don't know how diminutive he is. How can they find you online? You, oh, my bitch. God. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> it's like listening to mom and dad talk dirty, right? Yeah. If you want to find me online, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also reach the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. Please join the uh, fine folks in the official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group or leave a comment on our regular old Facebook page. You can support the show at patreon.com and hear Toby's exclusive book club podcast. The In Cold Blood episode is very popular with the ladies. For other exclusive ad-free content, of course, you can subscribe at stitcherpremium.com slash crime. Go to our website, sign up for our newsletter, and just know this. Our theme song, it was performed by Rocksteady Freddy and the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, formerly known as Studio C, where the water is clean, but the language and the feelings are not. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Bow, bow, bow. And everyone knows Kevin's huge, so that's a joke. Hey, it's like sticking a whole turkey into a toilet paper roll. What? <laughs> Jesus. Oh, God. Thank you. Thank you okay. for that Oh, my God. Image. This is a big owl. Oh, my God. It's like almost like as tall as Perfect. a person. Send me a link. <laughs> it's in the UK. I don't think we're going to get it. I want it. I'll pay for shipping. London. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. That'll cost like thousands of dollars to ship. You know what we need? We need like an Indiegogo to get that owl. That's what we need. Rebecca, where do you think I got this bag of 20 Kind snacks? From Kind? Yes, it's the new (laughs) snack pack from Kind. You can enjoy 50% off and free shipping with your first snack pack when you subscribe to it through Snack Club, Kind's monthly snack subscription. Go to kindsnacks.com slash crime for more details. That's kindsnacks.com slash crime to learn more and subscribe to the snack pack.